It's Wednesday, April 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. has already pledged almost $3 trillion to save Americans and the economy from the coronavirus pandemic. About 60% of the money for businesses, large and small, and direct payments to people are in the form of grants, which are funds that will not be recovered by taxpayers. Scott Newsom, PhD candidate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, joins us for how the coronavirus bailout will cost us hundreds of billions of dollars. Next, we are making our way to getting back to work, but one big hurdle is the commute. For many that rely on public transportation, this still poses a big problem for companies and employees wary of being in close contact with many people. Some companies are considering alternatives to mass transit like private bus shuttles or smaller office space closer to where many workers live. Chip Cutter, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the commute back to work. Finally, one in three death certificates were wrong before coronavirus hit, and it could get worse. Part of the problem is the paperwork and the patchwork system of medical examiners, coroners, and doctors who fill out the death certificates. It can all vary from state to state and also the circumstances where the death occurred. Jessica Priest, investigative reporter at the USA Today Network, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We've been very clear. We announced today that any loan over $2 million will have a full review for forgiveness before they're repaid, because this is the story of small business here. And I am so pleased to see how this is working. Joining us now is Scott Newsom, PhD candidate for politics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me on. We wanted to talk about all the money that is going into the stimulus packages that the U.S. government is going through right now during the coronavirus recession. We've pledged almost $3 trillion to save the economy and Americans from what's going on. The interesting thing is that this is going to cost taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. We've gone through this before in the past, other bailouts. Everybody remembers 2008 and all the industries that we bailed out then. But this is a little different because a lot of those actually made money or at least broke even. In this case, a lot of this is taking the form of grants. So we're not going to recover a lot of this money. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about this. The current bailouts are different than the past bailouts in the fact that they're going to cost a lot of money, hundreds of billions of dollars. My research shows that at least over the past 50 years, a vast majority of bailouts have actually made money or turned to profit where this bailout is going to cost taxpayers Right now, estimated, if you count in the fourth law that was just signed into law, will cost taxpayers around about $659 billion over 10 years. Let's start off with our lessons from the past and some of the bailouts that we've done before. Let's talk about the ones that have given us a profit. One in particular, as I mentioned, back to 2008, we pledged trillions of dollars to save the financial system. Everybody remembers TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, things like that. Those actually made some money. I think we made, from your reporting, $32.5 billion off of that. Taxpayers earned about $32.5 billion off of the money that was dispersed to help the financial sector. And TARP, everybody remembers it was $700 billion, but only a portion of those funds were actually dispersed to Wall Street firms like Citigroup, JP Morgan, and AIG. And in exchange for that help, Wall Street firms gave the federal government preferred stock options and other forms of compensation to pay back taxpayers for this help. The other one that everybody kind of remembers, you always hear Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that one, taxpayers got their money back as well. 
taxpayers got their money back and got a very large profit from that. The U.S. government, just adjusting for inflation, invested in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac around $234 billion. So far, up to this year, they've received back that money plus an additional $123 billion in profits. And that continuing to go on as we speak, as the U.S. government still holds certain positions in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and are still receiving dividends for the money they invested. So these were all structured in this way, obviously, as you mentioned, some preferred stock options, other compensation. We were always planning to get some of that money back. And, you know, early on, the concerns are obviously, well, we're putting a ton of money up front. We don't know what we're going to get back or how much or what it's going to look like at the end when it all shakes out. But we did make money back on those things. There's been some other ones, railroad industry bailouts and other airline bailouts that we really didn't make money back. Some of them weren't designed to do that per se, but these coronavirus bailouts, we're not going to be seeing any of this. It's kind of this weird situation because we're bailing out these companies, these small businesses, bigger businesses, whatever it is, but this is just to keep us afloat. This is kind of not any singular industry almost. It's kind of everybody all at once. That's what makes these bailouts too also very different than previous bailouts over the past 50 years is this bailout is focused on saving the economy and basically keeping the economy afloat, keeping big businesses afloat, along with small businesses afloat. And previous recessions or in previous bailouts that have occurred, the U.S. government has normally you know, bailed out an industry, say with industries such as the railroad industry or uh, the airline industry or a specific company like Chrysler or uh, GM or Lockheed Martin. So going back to what we're doing right now, you know, these small businesses, they're not going to have to pay any of this back under the payroll protection program, as long as they're keeping workers on their payrolls, at least smaller airlines might not have to pay some of this stuff back while larger airlines are expected to. And beyond that, even uh, big corporations are all rolled into all this. Small businesses, as long as they keep workers on their payroll, will not have to pay back most of the assistance they've received under the payroll protection program. There's also other money that small businesses are getting for economic injury, disaster grants, and kind of debt forgiveness for other loans they've taken out with the Small Business Administration that's going to end up costing taxpayers money that's given to small businesses. The airline industry as well, as you said, has received $61 billion so far, and small passenger airlines will not repay that assistance while large airlines are expected to. And even big corporations and state and local governments are roped into this, so it looks like corporations and state and local governments will have to repay the aid that they receive. So far, Congress has set aside $454 billion for large corporations and states and local governments, and about $195 billion of that money has been invested by the Treasury into various Federal Reserve programs. In return, taxpayers will get probably interest and possibly equity stakes in return for that money. At the end, what does this look like? I mean, obviously, we're just going to be adding a ton of money to the national debt, But beyond that, how do we pinch our pennies after this? There will probably be some form of a uh, cutback, I'm sure, down the road eventually from all the spending. But at the end of the day, when millions of jobs and millions of small businesses are at stake, I think Congress just wanted to rescue the economy. Scott Newsom, Ph.D. candidate for politics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. They can make lots of plans to sanitize workstations, to distance people properly in the office. What they have no control over, though, is how people get to the office, the commute itself. Joining us now is Chip Cutter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Chip. Thanks for having me. We're all in this conversation now about getting back to work, reopening economies, 
There's already some states that have done it. Some of the larger states, let's say like New York was kind of this epicenter of coronavirus, COVID-19 in the country, still have yet to formulate those plans. You know, the road back is a lot harder for them. But one of those biggest hurdles to bringing people back to work might be the commute. How do people get to work, especially in these big cities that have these kind of density problems where everybody is packed in so tight, a lot of people rely on public transportation. And a lot of people are going to be very fearful for getting in a packed subway car, a packed train car, whatever the case may be, because people could be sick. A lot of people probably maybe not want to wear their face masks, things like that. So that's a big problem that companies are facing, and they're formulating plans on how to get around this. So let us know a little bit more about this, Chip. That's exactly right. You think of biggest financial capitals in the world, places like New York and London and Tokyo, all very much dependent on public transit. And companies are realizing that they can make lots of plans to sanitize workstations, to distance people properly in the office. What they have no control over, though, is how people get to the office, the commute itself. And so that's proving to be incredibly problematic. And companies are having to think through, really, what do we do from the moment that our employees leave their front doors to try to get to work? How do we think through some possible solutions here? Obviously, some of these are bigger companies because they have the capital and the resources for these things. But some companies are thinking of things such as company car allowances, private bus services and shuttles, or even if they have to, leasing smaller office space in locations closer to where some workers live. All of those are on the table now. I talked with one organization that was kind of ahead of this, and that's New York Presbyterian Hospital, a large private healthcare system in New York. What New York Presbyterian did was start about 30 bus routes. They looked, they did a zip code analysis to see where their workers were based in the New York region, and then set up all these private coach bus routes. And so only about 50% of the capacity was used so they could space people apart. They had a cleaner who boarded the bus after every trip. That gave them the ability to get these essential medical workers to the hospital without them having to go on trains or public buses. And so I think we might see more solutions like that, more companies looking to people like Google and Facebook, the companies that have done this for a long time now. So all of these are on the table. You also see some companies thinking about bringing the company car back. Others are offering moped sharing services or bike sharing services at a discount for employees, trying to find ways to get people to the office if they don't feel comfortable getting on public transit. And even the flip side, something that we're doing right now, working from home, some are willing to embrace just doing that a lot longer just to avoid having either the expense of this or just the overall worry for their employees to get sick. They might just say, hey, let's just keep this work at home thing going. You know, I know there's a lot of companies that realized how well they could do this, mostly out of necessity, but it's been pretty successful in a lot of different companies. I've been talking to HR executives at all sorts of different companies over the past couple of weeks, and they all say this idea that we can somehow restrict people from working remotely is really over now. Our employees have proven that they're able to do it, so it's going to be tough for companies to really say you can't do your work at home. That said, a lot of companies do eventually want to get people back to offices still. They see value in the camaraderie and the ideas that are generated by having folks in the same place. And there are also very real issues that we're all facing at home whether that's childcare issues or just a lack of space, working from home isn't always that easy. So I think companies do want to offer that choice to people, even if only initially, say, 30% of an office might come back. You know, the commute obviously is one of the very first things. How do you even get to work? Once we get back inside the workplace, companies are also thinking about that. How do you manage the flow? One of the things you noted in your article, one-way hallways could be a thing. 
That's right. Companies are looking at the floor plans of their spaces and saying, okay, this hallway needs to be this direction. This stairwell should only go up or down. Very similar to what we've seen in grocery stores across the country. And so some of those approaches, I think, will make their way into offices. But this is really a challenge for a number of HR executives and for companies trying to figure out how do we do this safely? How do we bring people back to the office, putting in all of these changes that will make it possible to do work while also still keeping people far enough apart from each other? Yeah, it's constantly been a very interesting thing looking forward. And, you know, we look at places like Japan, culturally, they wear the masks all the time, the face mask. And it just really seems like this is going to be a change that everybody's going to have to make. Right now in our company here, they're already telling us we have to wear face masks and nobody's here. There's a skeleton crew of people here. But once people really come back, that might be a new normal for a lot of companies. I think you're right. And you're already seeing some government officials across the U.S. call for this. I think about the governor of Ohio and other states have said, if you're working in an office, you should be wearing a mask. And I think that is going to become the norm in a lot of companies. Many HR executives I spoke with said that they are looking to those local officials, though, to kind of give guidance on what that should be. But I think it is. I think it's becoming part of our reality. And I think people are more and more comfortable with that. Chip Cutter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Missouri did a review of its own hospitals back in 2017 and found that nearly half the death certificates listed an inaccurate cause of death. Joining us now is Jessica Priest, investigative reporter at the USA Today Network. Thanks for joining us, Jessica. Thank you. Wanted to talk about how we're counting coronavirus deaths and beyond that, just how inaccurate the system is right now. One in three death certificates were wrong before this all started. And it could get a lot worse due to just kind of this patchwork system that we have state by state, lack of training, and then as usual, a shortage of workers. There's always something like that going on. So Bob Anderson, he's the chief of mortality statistics branch at the National Center for Health Statistics. He's the one that you quoted in your article that said that one in three death certificates are wrong right now. Jessica, tell us a little bit about what's going on with all this. The numbers are kind of disputed, but there's been study after study over the years about just people investigating death, not knowing how to properly code it on death certificates. And this is really important because this tells people like Mr. Anderson at the National Center for Health Statistics, it kind of gives these numbers are reported by the state to the National Center for Health Statistics, and it gives researchers and people working in public health the information they need to basically fight public health crises and empower people to redirect resources where they're needed. And this is kind of, you know, a culmination of a lot of different things. We've talked about this previously on the podcast, actually, in a few different ways. With regards to coronavirus, the way they count the deaths state by state varies. Some states require a positive test for it to be counted towards coronavirus. Others, they're just counting probable cases. And beyond that, forensic pathologists in the country, the numbers of those are very, very low. And there's backlogs of deaths. There's all sorts of things that go into why there's so many inaccuracies. There was a report by the U.S. Department of Justice that they gave back in December of 2019 saying the U.S. needs 700-something more forensic pathologists and that death investigations without this workforce and adequate resources are not very reliable. With the forensic pathologists, too, part of it is 
it's a pretty grueling job. There's already a backlog, so you know that the workload is heavy. And then they don't get paid that much compared to some of their peers in, in the medical field. So for people that want to be forensic pathologists, it's a tough road there. Jessica, tell us some of the inaccuracies that we've been seeing. I guess there was a study in 2017 in Missouri, Vermont. We have dad on the CDC. There's a couple of numbers that basically say that half of death certificates are wrong. Missouri did a review of its own hospitals back in 2017 and found that nearly half the death certificates listed an inaccurate cause of death. The Vermont study, Vermont is actually pretty diligent in the way that it investigates deaths. It doesn't have coroners or people who don't have any sort of medical expertise investigating deaths. It has like a statewide medical examiner's office that investigates violent deaths. But in addition to that, they also are reviewing in real time all of the death certificates that get submitted to them and going back and double-checking them, which a lot of states actually don't do. And what was striking about Vermont was even doing all that due diligence, they still found when they did a review of death certificates over a certain time period, like in 2015, 2016, that more than half were submitted incorrectly. And the big issue is a lot of doctors, I guess, just don't do it often enough, or they view it as a administrative tasks. They don't really understand how important it is for our understanding of public health. So they are putting down like the immediate cause of death, but not the underlying cause. So that's problematic, especially in a pandemic like this, where people may be dying of like pneumonia. That's like the immediate cause of death, but they're dying of pneumonia after contracting COVID-19. And as I mentioned earlier, the way that states count it is different across the country. I think Alabama was a big outlier in the way they count the deaths. And a lot of other states started counting probable deaths just because the information was going out wrong. And another big part of the problem, as you were kind of getting to a little bit, is this lack of expertise. There's so many different people that can legally sign the death certificates, either physicians, coroners, medical examiners, and some states, nurse practitioners can sign it. So it can get pretty dicey on what they're putting down as the actual cause of death. Before I came to Austin, I lived in Victoria, Texas, and we had justices of the peace that went out when there was a death, an unintended death. And generally, they're just lay people that were elected to that position. They don't have any medical expertise. If there's like a homicide or something, they would send the body to be autopsied in like a major city like Houston or Austin. But yeah, they just have to make the best judgment call. And it depends what the setting is. As you were mentioning, you know, if it's a homicide, a certain person would be signing it. If it was in a medical setting like a hospital, then it could be a hospital worker there. Uh, so it's just a big patchwork that is tough to get a hold on. Every state does it differently. I'm not really sure why we don't have like a federal standard. I did find, though, that most states are using like the same death certificate or there's very few changes among them. So the National Center for Health Statistics, that helps them when they're trying to push out the data so journalists like us can analyze what's going on and let other people know what's going on. Jessica Priest, investigative reporter at the USA Today Network. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.